Well, would you join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark? And we're continuing in our series in that Gospel. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one underneath the seats nearby you. And that's on page 838 of those, um, those Bibles there. So we'll be looking at Mark chapter 3 this morning. And this chapter shows us how various people have various responses to Jesus. We see fans of Jesus. We see family members of Jesus in this chapter. We see true followers. And we see enemies. A lot of different ideas about who Jesus is. A lot of different responses to him. And it's really not much different from our own culture today. Some people like Jesus, but they don't really know him. They're more like the fans in this chapter. Some are set against him. They dismiss him. They reject him and his people. Some think that he is crazy, not worth our time. They're embarrassed by him. And some are trying to follow him, and yet they're embarrassed by a lot of what he said. So the key question in our text this morning, and the key question still today, is this. Who is he? Right? Who is the real Jesus, and what do, will you do with him? That was the most relevant question then. And it's still the most relevant question today. And I say the real Jesus because then and now people miss the real Jesus. Today, many people reject Jesus, right? But so often, if you ask them to describe the Jesus they reject, that would not map onto the Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the real Jesus. In other words, the God that people reject, the Jesus people reject, isn't the real Jesus. And so we actually have a great opportunity today to rediscover the real Jesus and to help people come to terms with him to at least reject the real one and, Lord willing, by his grace to follow him. So our text this morning is here to help us get a clear and real image of Jesus. People are fans or embarrassed or offended, but there's another group in this story that becomes Jesus' real family. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went on up on the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James and John, or James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Verse 22. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem 
were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for not only preserving this through the ages, but that thank you that this is living and active and it penetrates our souls. And so we pray that you would give us clarity of understanding of what this text says and means, and we pray that you would transform us in the ways that only you can do, that you would convict us of sin, encourage us deeply, and transform us into the image of your Son by the Spirit's power. Amen. Well, in this story, we see Jesus uh, doing three things. He is catalyzing a movement. He is clarifying his identity for all these people who are confused about him, and he creates a family. So the first thing we see Jesus do is he's catalyzing a movement. So Jesus launched a movement here, and these are the earliest stages of this, and this movement would eventually go global and continue throughout history through today, which is why we're here this morning. And that's what verses 7 to 19 show us, the beginning of this movement. And so we actually learn a lot about what this movement will be like and become by looking at these first stages of it. So let's just observe five aspects together here of this movement that Jesus is beginning here. So first notice, perhaps obviously, but let's not miss it, Jesus is at the center of this movement. Jesus is at the heart of it. Look at verse 7. The crowd was following Jesus. Wherever he went, they went. He, he was at the center of this movement. He wasn't launching it somewhere else. He's at the heart of it. And Jesus is at the center of real Christianity. Real Christianity and this movement is not mainly about a set of behaviors or a set of religious practices or political ideas, although all those things do flow from coming to know the real Jesus. But at the center of it is Jesus himself. So as Christians, we're not united because of a set of ethics or morals or political policies, but because of Jesus. So Jesus is at the center. Second, notice that it's multi-ethnic. Jesus was Jewish, and his focus here at the beginning was first among the Jewish people. 
But from the beginning, we see this, this movement would become global. He didn't just come for the Jewish people, but for all people groups. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. A huge crowd's coming to Jesus, but not just from one town or region. It's no longer just Jesus going into a town and then that town coming around him. It's people from all over the area, even from Gentile locations. So notice it says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So far, that's mainly Jewish people, but now he mentions places saturated with non-Jewish people, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. So those are places that were saturated with this mixture of Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So this is the beginning of this global, multi-ethnic Christian movement. So Christianity isn't owned by one ethnic group, or one demographic, or one culture. Jesus came to create a multi-ethnic movement. And this is why in our own day it's so important for us to value the lives of people from every group, both because every human being is made in God's image and therefore matters and is valuable, and also because Jesus came to redeem people from every people group on the planet. Uh, They matter to him and so they matter to us. And so we reject racism, we celebrate ethnic diversity in God's kingdom. A third mark here, we see that Jesus' ministry continues to be holistic. So we'll keep seeing this through the Gospel of Mark. We've already seen it. Jesus is both a teacher and a healer. He cares about spiritual demonic oppression and physical healing. He cares about solving the deepest problem we have, which is the need of forgiveness before the one true God, so we might be with Him in a new creation forever. And He also cares about all the problems in life even the problems of the mind and the body here. And so this is what we see in verses 10 and 12. So this crowd's gathering around him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So he's healing all these people. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, so these demons would see him, they'd fell down before him. So these are probably people who had demons living in them. They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And we see before and after this, he's also casting out demons from these people, giving them their lives back. So Jesus is both preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and he's also demonstrating its power. That's what the healings and the casting of demons is about. This is demonstrating the kingdom's power because it has dawned in Jesus. So he's really giving a foretaste of what the renewal of all things will look like in the end with complete healing and renewal in the new creation. Now, as a side note, did you notice that the demons are identifying Jesus, saying, you are the Son of God, and then he says, stop talking about that, right? Don't reveal who I am. Uh, A lot of you have asked me about this um, so far in Mark. Why does Jesus keep keep telling people to be quiet? He keeps saying, don't go tell people about me. Um, Well, there's really, it depends on the situation. So as you read through the gospel of Mark, you'll see Jesus doing this a lot, especially in the first half of the gospel. And you just have to think through each situation, why he might be doing this. Earlier in the book, it's because um, he said, don't spread the news because we find out that if it gets spread too far too quickly, he can't even enter into towns anymore because it's just crowds filling all the areas. But here, I think there's two reasons why he tells this demon to be quiet. One, because he's a demon. That's not the mouthpiece that Jesus wants promoting his identity to the world. 
right? And number two, because it's not yet time. Jesus is slowly, methodically revealing who He is throughout His ministry. He announces the kingdom of God, but no one has a clue really who He is and what that means. And so He's very slowly, deliberately revealing His plan. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, and it's not until chapter 8 that Jesus starts explicitly saying He's going to die. And even when He does, His own disciples, his Peter, is even like, no way, not going to happen, right? They just don't get it. So Jesus is slowly revealing Himself because if demons go out or anyone else saying, hey, the king's here or the Son of God's here, people will fill their minds with wrong ideas of what that even means. So He's being careful. Fourth mark of this movement, Jesus in this movement is fulfilling the story of Israel. So the prophets like Isaiah in the Old Testament said that when the Messiah would come, a remnant of Israel, so a a group within ethnic Israel, would be restored, and then the nations would come pouring in. The people of God would be restored first as Israel, and then the nations would join. And so what is Jesus doing? He's following those steps. He's following that pattern. He's creating a new Israel by starting with these Israelite believers, and then he's welcoming non-Jewish people, Gentiles in. And we see this in the way that he called the first apostles. In verses 13 to 19, this is the description of Jesus calling those first disciples or first apostles. And notice he chooses 12, and it's repeated a couple times, and it will be later, the 12. He called 12, and it's repeated. So have you ever wondered why? It's not 11. It's not 13. In fact, even later, when Judas betrays Jesus um, and is out of the picture, the disciples, there's 11 of them, they say, we need one more again. Why do they have to stick with the number 12? Well, they would have known, the Jewish people at the time would have known what that number symbolized. It symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. And the message is that Jesus is gathering a new Israel. He's restoring uh, a true Israel, the true people of God, creating a new people of God. This, these 12 disciples, these apostles, will be the core of a new 12 tribes. Uh, but it won't just be 12 ethnically Jewish tribes. It's the new Israel, and the Gentiles will be welcomed in here. So Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel. And those 12 disciples also show us the fifth mark of this new movement, and that is that it has leaders. Jesus was appointing these disciples to be the leaders of this new movement, this new Israel. And what were they to do? Well, here we see they have three purposes. To be with Jesus, to speak about Jesus, and to work in the name of Jesus. We see this in verses 14 to 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, which is uh, messengers, people sent with a message, so that they might be with him, And he might send them out to preach, so be with him, speak about him, and have authority to cast out demons. Now, he doesn't mention healing here, but that'll be included later. So they were to be with Jesus, uh, not just work for Jesus, but to be with him, to spread the message of Jesus, and to cast out demons and heal. Now, that was a unique calling for the apostles there. They were uniquely blessed to be with Jesus in his ministry. And given this authority and power to cast out demons and heal on occasion. And yet there is a model here of really what true discipleship is. Jesus is showing us a picture of what it means to be his follower. Uh, And that includes being with Jesus, 
So not just joining a movement, but actually getting to know the real Jesus and walking with him in real friendship. And speaking of Jesus, the privilege of carrying this message out to our family and our friends and our neighbors and the nations, and to live for Jesus and work in the name of Jesus and to serve in the name of Jesus. And so who were these leaders? Well, look at the list. Simon Peter, he's the first in the list. He's always first on these lists because he was the leader and after Jesus. And notice who's last and always last. It's Judas who betrayed him. So that's intentional. And then in between, it's quite an eclectic group. There's a couple sets of brothers. Uh, we have James and John, Simon Peter and Andrew. It seems like Jesus liked to choose sibling pairs. Isn't that interesting? Um, should encourage you, brothers and sisters. And the list is quite diverse. We have blue-collar and white-collar workers. We have this tax collector named Levi, who we know as Matthew, who would have, would have in his past sided with the Romans in the political issues of the day. And then we have Simon the Zealot, who would have, it seems, been kind of a revolutionary against Rome. And now they're together as a new community, leading this new movement under Jesus. So it's quite a diverse list. And the church now, as part of this movement, is quite an eclectic group. Different ethnicities, different socioeconomic status, different political leanings in their background, and they come together around Jesus and try to figure out how to live as a new humanity. And so these men here are to be leaders of that new movement, and we'll see that We'll see some of these men leading in the book of Acts. You can see how the church was launched out in the world and churches were planted. And then as churches were planted, this leadership principle was always carried on. And so the apostle Paul, for instance, who was later named an apostle, he would plant a church and then he'd always circle back and appoint elders and make sure elders are appointed in churches, which is why we have a group of men leading as elders uh, for our church family. So Jesus is catalyzing a new movement with these five marks. So it was a Jesus-centered multi-ethnic, holistic movement as a new Israel with leadership. And this movement took the world by surprise. Surprised the Greco-Roman world in the first century, spread through Europe, Africa, Asia, eventually North and South America, and it continues today. And so for all the uh, article titles that talk about the decline of the church, well, sure, the decline of church in some areas of the world um, but it is booming in the global south. Jesus' church keeps growing. And so Jesus is at the center of it. So the question will always be then, okay, so who is this Jesus? And that's the question at the center of this text. So we see Jesus doesn't just catalyze a movement. He clarifies his identity here. And what is fascinating about this chapter is that we see everyone trying to figure this out. Everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is. And he revealed his identity slowly. So some people were open and patient and curious, and we see them following Jesus as best they knew. But others were quick to claim that they had it figured out, that they knew who Jesus really was, and they were quick to criticize and dismiss him. And many tend to do the same today. So who is he? Well, here's three options in verses 20 to 30. And these are really the only three options we have. If we take the Bible seriously, the, the vision of Jesus Mark is presenting, he gives us really three options. He, Jesus is either deluded, or he is deceiving people, 
or he is truly the divine Son of God. Or you may be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis, and he summarized it this way, Jesus is either a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he is, in fact, the Lord. And so those are the three options that Jesus gives us. We, can, we can't take him as merely a nice religious person with nice ethical teaching. So let's consider these options. First, is he deluded? Is he a crazy lunatic? Well, that's apparently what some of his family members thought at this time. Jesus, the Jesus movement starts spreading, his family hears about it, and they're embarrassed by him. Verses 20 to 21, you can read it with me. It says, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat, right? So, I mean, this crowd is getting huge. People are coming from all over, various cities and villages, can't even eat. And when his family heard it, so they hear this movement is launching, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. So this is probably, we learn later in a few verses, and then in chapter 6, probably Mary and some of his brothers and his sisters. His family knew him and loved him for 30 years by now, but now he's starting a movement, and there's a lot of opposition, and there it seems embarrassed by him. So they're saying he's losing his mind, and they have to go bring him home. So maybe you, at times, can actually feel like Jesus' family. Now, you may not say just, yeah, I think Jesus is crazy, but you like Jesus, but sometimes when you read what he says or when people say what Jesus says that they don't like, you can be a bit embarrassed, feel a bit embarrassed that Jesus would say or think those things. This is a temptation for a lot of people in our culture today. It used to be kind of a beneficial. You get points in this culture in the past for saying you're a Christian. Um, you know, 30 years ago, if I met a random person and said, you know, you know, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Probably would have been a good thing. Now, I never know how people are going to respond. And it's very clear that it's not always good. Usually neutral. Wonder if that's actually negative um, underneath there. And so, it's getting costly. People are embarrassed about Jesus, and therefore we can be embarrassed to associate with him or be embarrassed by certain things he did or said, and we wish that he didn't. And so, for instance, if you take Jesus seriously and you hear him say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's like, wow, is Jesus really the only way? He said it. Are we embarrassed by that? Um, or you take Jesus seriously in Matthew 19, where he affirms the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating male and female and instituting marriage as between one man and one woman, and then saying divorce is a non-option except for sexual immorality. Are we embarrassed by Jesus? We are tempted to be. And so we're tempted to edit him a bit. And many do that today. Many people are embarrassed with what the Bible says, and so they don't just say, well, I'm embarrassed by that. They say, well, he didn't really mean that, or he didn't really say that. Or I was hearing someone on the news program um, say recently, I love Jesus. I'm all about the gospel of Jesus. Not so much Paul. Not sure what to do with Paul. So then, okay, so we're going to take Jesus, but not his apostle, right? And as if there's a contradiction in, 
in the Bible here, which, by the way, Mark, who wrote this gospel, was a friend of Paul's. We see a lot of the things Paul said actually reflected in the gospel of Mark. There's not a contradiction between Jesus and Paul, between the gospels and Paul's letters. But the point is we can be embarrassed by him. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. To edit Jesus is to make him out into our own image, which is to make him to be someone he's not, which is to make an idol, which is false worship which is really just to reject the real Jesus altogether. So we either take Jesus whole or we're wasting our time. So is he crazy? He doesn't give us this option. Uh, And his family members came to change their minds after a while anyway. Okay, but if he's not deluded, is he being deceptive? That's the second option. And that's what the religious theologians of the day thought. So this Uh, These scribes are here coming from Jerusalem. So this is probably an official delegation. I mean, already in chapter 3, we have an official delegation coming from Jerusalem to check out Jesus. As we saw last week, uh, we talked to um, Derek, preached and showed us that there are the four things Jesus did that got him killed. In chapter 2, right? This is early. And he's already doing things that we see will get him killed because people are already set against him. So the religious theologians said that he is deceiving people. They couldn't deny what he's doing. He's clearly healing people. He's casting out demons. And so rather than deny it, they try to reframe what's happening here. They said that he's doing this actually in the power of Satan. He's casting out demons because he's possessed by a demon, or he's doing it in the power of Satan, whom they refer to as Beelzebul. Uh, But Jesus does what he often does. He calmly, rationally, shows them that their argument is actually ridiculous, right? So he says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that means Satan is casting out his own demons. He's, we have a conflict within his kingdom, which means it's imploding. So it would be like someone watching Muhammad Ali fight and saying when he loses, saying, well, he paid the other guy to beat him up, right, and torpedo his career. Like, possible, very implausible, Um, for someone to do that to themselves. So either way, the point is that he's losing. So that's what Jesus is showing. He's like, even if I was, this wouldn't make sense because it would mean that Satan's kingdom is being destroyed. Um, So these religious leaders have zero openness to him. They see God's power. They call it Satan's power, which is why Jesus gives this warning that has unsettled so many people over the years. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they other, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I've had conversations with many of you over the years about that statement Jesus makes, um, because it can be so unsettling um, to so many people, especially if you have a sensitive conscience and you wonder, have I done this? Am I who he's talking about here? Wondering if you're beyond hope. You trust Jesus, but you wonder if you can be forgiven. So what does Jesus mean? Well, with any verse, we have to understand it in its context. And the context is this. Jesus is warning people who clearly know who he is, but are decisively rejecting him against what they know to be true. So they see the Holy Spirit's power at work in Jesus, And they say, that's the work of a demon. They see that Jesus is God's king, 
whom they should submit to, and instead they say he's a sorcerer, which would be worthy of death sentence in that time. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the clear and continual and entrenched rejection of Jesus against knowledge. So why can't this sin be forgiven? Well, here's one answer, because you're rejecting the only source of forgiveness. You're calling the work of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ the work of Satan. You're calling good evil, the greatest good, the greatest evil. So here's the question everyone asks, and understandably so. Have I committed this? And so if you are asking that question and you sincerely hope you haven't, and you are open to Jesus, even a little, then you are not beyond forgiveness. In other words, if you are concerned that you have committed this sin, that concern is evidence that you haven't, because this sin comes from a heart that's so hardened that it doesn't want the forgiveness of Jesus. So, there's two views of Jesus so far. He's either deluded or he's deceptive. And the third is this. By the way, I just want to back up real quick. Um, let's not miss, Jesus says this that statement is so concerning to us. But notice what he said before it that is so comforting. All the sins and blasphemies that people utter will be forgiven. Right? Accept that. And so take comfort. Jesus is announcing full, free, pervasive forgiveness for whatever sins have been committed. Just accept this hardened rejection of him. Understandably so. Okay, so what's the last option then? If he's not deluded or deceptive, well, then he's who he said he is. He's the divine king. He's bringing the kingdom of God. So notice how Jesus responded to the scribes here. He said that he was casting, if they said he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus uses this as an opportunity to tell them who he really is. Verses 26 and 27, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, then he can't stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is saying, if I am casting out demons, it's because I am like someone who has entered a strong man's house, bound him up, and I'm plundering him. This is a mini theology of spiritual warfare. Satan and his demons are strong, and they cause problems. Jesus is stronger, and he's plundering Satan's house. So what's the point? Jesus is not deluded. He is not deceptive or demonic. He's the divine king, and this is his world, and he's come to reclaim it. He isn't a lunatic or a liar. He is the Lord. Now, there would be a fair objection at this point, and maybe some of you are thinking this, and it'd be fair. There's one other option. Maybe this is all made up, right? Maybe Mark is making this story up about Jesus. This is a legend. Many people believe that, and it's a fair and honest question, and so what if it's a legend? Honest questions deserve honest answers, and so I'm convinced that this option doesn't hold up either, uh, it's historically implausible for a couple reasons. One, this view of Jesus as this divine Lord who's come to reclaim his world 
Uh, this grew up among Jewish people who would not have been inclined to believe that Jesus was, in fact, divine. They believed adamantly in one true God. Many of them had a very hard time understanding how Jesus could also be divine. And so, they certainly not only had a hard time believing it, they wouldn't have made this kind of thing up, and they wouldn't have made it up expecting it to get any traction among Jewish people, and yet it did. Second, this story itself has the marks of historical plausibility. I mean, do you see how it portrays Jesus' own family here? By the time this was written, Mary and James, Mary, Jesus' mother, James, Jesus' biological brother, um, would have been honored. James would have been a leader in the Jerusalem church by now. Mary was honored. So by the time this was written, they would have been honored, and yet here they are calling Jesus crazy. Uh, it would have seemed dishonoring. And so Mark is writing this, portraying them as thinking Jesus is crazy. So any scholar and commentary that addressed this said the same thing. They never would have been portrayed that way unless it was true. So what do we do with Jesus then? We each have to come to terms with him. The story started with the crowds swarming Jesus, and a lot of those people weren't sure what to do with him. If you aren't sure what to do with Jesus, that's okay, but you can't stay in the crowd forever. You have to come to terms with him. Who is he? So for those of you who are, you'd kind of put yourself in that category as kind of part of the crowd exploring Jesus, I would encourage you to keep exploring. Um, Get to know him. Figure out what your questions are. What questions do you have that you want answered about who Jesus is, who the real Jesus is, and what it would mean to follow him. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read it straight through. Uh, Read it with an open mind. Bring questions to a Christian friend. And Christians, if you have a friend come to you with questions and you're not sure of the answer, say you're not sure of the answer. (laughs) Totally fine. We don't have all the answers. Um, And you can say, I'm not sure, but I'll look into it and I'd love to get back with you. Um, And I'd love to help you uh, with resources or help think, think through those things. Happy to respond. So Jesus is catalyzing a movement. He's clarifying his identity here. And now what happens to those who do join the movement, who do embrace Jesus as Lord? Well, this last scene shows us. Jesus creates a new family. Look at verse 31 and 32 with me. So, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, so they're there to seize him, right? Standing outside, they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was sitting around Jesus in this house. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now remember, the family's not there just kind of giving a message or saying it's time to come home. They're embarrassed by him. They think he's out of his mind. They want to bring him home. And so listen to how Jesus responds in verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking, I mean, if he stopped there, it'd be like, they're outside, Right? You know who your mother and brothers are. He has a point to make. Looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. What a radical statement, especially in a culture that had such a tight-knit view of what family is all about. For Jesus then to say, that his closest circle of belonging, his family, he's redefining family here, are those who are around him there. 
In many places, Jesus affirms the goodness of human family. But what he's doing here is saying this, for my followers and for me, there's a new family that takes priority. Natural family no longer comes first. It's good, it's necessary, it's important, and if you follow me, you'll bless your natural family. But it's not first. There's a new family around me. And who is the new family? Jesus says in a phrase, it's those who do the will of God. And what does that mean? Well, what are they doing? They're doing the will of God by following Jesus. They're around Him, learning from Him, listening to Him, open to Him. Right? He's announcing the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. They're repenting of their sin and they're following Him. And He says, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my mother. This is my new family. And they're gathering together. So here's the point. When you become a Christian, you get a new family your truest family, not just an additional one that's optional. You get a new primary family. It starts now, and it continues forever. And this is what Jesus came to create. He was saying this on his way to the cross, where he would die in order to make this family become a, an eternal reality. He was rejected on the cross, taking our rejection so that we could be accepted into his truest family. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was condemned so that we could be accepted and forgiven and welcomed as children of God. And so now he welcomes all who come to him in faith, and he calls them brothers and sisters. So how do we respond to this? A couple brief notes. One, make sure that you get in on this family. And you do this by getting clear about Jesus and by following him. You enter his family by grace. You don't earn your place at his table. He welcomes you in. So trust him. Second, if you are in, then very practically and functionally prioritize, prioritize this new family above your natural family. That is the implication here. Now, family... Natural family is necessary, and it's good, and that's for another sermon. But for here, Jesus is saying that there is a new family identity that you are given and that takes precedent. For Christians, our deepest family is with Jesus and his people. This is really good news for some people around the world who, by following Jesus, lose their family. Um, and they have a new one new brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. So if you have a great natural family, that is a blessing of the Lord. Um, but it's not your primary family. And so for you parents, your children are your natural family. But your greatest task is to show them Jesus so they might become, of your, become part of your truest family forever. Um, and you fathers, lead your families to prioritize the local church family above any other kinds of groups or families. Um, if you don't have health concerns, don't take Sundays off to live stream at home. That's not the church family. This is the church family. Be here. Encourage people. Invest in relationships. Prioritize local church 
family, husbands and wives. Maybe some of you have a spouse who is not part of Jesus' family. It can be incredibly hard. And so I just want to encourage you, keep going, keep coming. Uh, know that you do have a true family. Um, and don't give up meeting together with brothers and sisters, even if that puts a hardship um, on your other relationship. Love and bless and serve your spouse. You also have a new family. So here's a third implication, last. Jesus isn't just relativizing family, but every other group we might find our identity in. Jesus and his church is primary. Groups can be really important. They're part of our identity in some sense, but they aren't primary. So your demographic group is not your primary identity. And that's what our culture is leaning into today. Find a group you can identify with and look down on others who have other groups or part of this. This means that any ethnic group that you would be a part of, any nation that you belong to, any current political tribe or ideology you identify with, any Christian denomination, all of those are secondary or less to our union with Jesus and all those who are united to him by faith. So be careful not to disdain any other Christian who is part of some other group that's not one that you're part of because they are part of your primary group, united with Jesus in a true family. And if you do that, you will be countercultural. And young people, you're going to find belonging in all sorts of groups, um, sports and clubs and friends. But when you follow Jesus, you have a primary set of family members in your local church. So invest now and for the rest of your life in the church. And this is good news. The God who made you, the God who made me, thought this up for our good. Uh, and he's, he's welcoming us back into real belonging, real family, a kind of belonging we can't actually experience anywhere else where we can know one another and be known under this atmosphere of grace and acceptance and welcome through Jesus. So let's enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great privilege of being your sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our elder brother who died for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being near to us and changing our hearts that we might follow Jesus. So we pray now, trying God, that you would help us to delight in and enjoy you and this eternal fellowship you've brought us into. In Jesus' name, amen.